Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Well, tonight is a good night, and like this text, got to be honest, I am uh, holding out wholeheartedly for next week. Because that's like one of my favorite texts of the entire book of 1 Samuel. Um, but man, I'm going to scoot up a little bit. It's good to be with you guys. Glad you guys are here tonight. Um, we're going to be into 1 Samuel 16. I'm going to try to clean up a little bit of, of 15. Because I got off on a way big old tangent last week and started getting passionate about things. I'm going to try not to do that tonight. Uh, but got passionate about some stuff and we really kind of flew over a really critical piece of information if you're going to set up 16. And I thought, man, I really didn't do that justice because I got way too involved. Um, before we get going, we're going to have just a little bit of fun here. And we will do this as a group instead of as individuals. Uh, your absolute guilty pleasure music, and I'm just going to say right now, it cannot cannot be a Christian band. I don't care if that's Andy, Dub, you know, Andy Grant, Michael W. Smith, whatever your go-to is. I want to know your go-to. It can be jazz. It can be big band. It can be... Anything you want it to be, but if you've got one go-to music when you want to relax or when you're having a bad day, uh, and I will tell you what mine is because mine will be the most embarrassing of all, I think. When I have to proclaim for everyone listening online and in this room, yes, I have a go-to group that I used to absolutely hate when I was in high school, and now I'm like, oh, I'm embarrassed that I like them. Okay, so let's call it out. Somebody tell me, what is your go-to group? You're driving home, it comes on, and you know you can't help but turn it up. What is it? Earth, Earth, wind, and fire. That's not really so guilty. That's just good. That's good. Anybody got a guilty pleasure, guilty pleasure music? You're like, oh, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I really like this group. Eagles. Okay, Eagles are good. That's a good one. All right. Everybody's playing pretty safe so far. Come on now. Come on now. Somebody's got something, something you're mildly embarrassed over that you know, like, if, if somebody you knew really well was in the car, you might turn it off like, oh, I hate this, but... You know secretly that you love it. I do old school country. Old school country? Like, Eddie what's Rabbit, old school? Oh, Eddie Rabbit. Okay, Ronnie Wilson. That's good stuff. Good. Anybody else? Guilty pleasure music? Billy Idol. Billy Idol. Okay, now we're getting there. Now we're getting there. There it is. I was waiting for like, you know, was it Rick Springfield, something like that? Okay, somebody else? Any more guilty pleasure? I've got a couple. One of mine, I'm going to bet guilty pleasure, Eminem. Dude, I will crank up Eminem, man. I will crank up Eminem. I love it. You like it? There we go. My other one, here's my true guilty pleasure. Let me open up. Absolutely embarrassed that I love it. But if I'm sitting in my car and Prince comes on, I'm turning it up. Purple Rain, Little Red Corvette, doesn't matter what it is. Embarrassed or not, I'm cranking it up. I don't want to tell you my wife's favorite song is because she didn't know forever what it meant. Uh, She used to love to hear it at the skating rink. And she would skate around in circles until I told her what it meant. And she's like, oh my. Uh, we'll just say it starts off something like, blood runs cold. We'll just leave it there. Some of you know exactly what it is. When she found out what that song was, she was like, oh my. All right, anybody else? Guilty pleasure music. Something you like to listen to that you enjoy. Dino. Okay, Dino. That's good music. That relaxing. Yeah, piano. I know who Dino is. I know someone used to play with Dino. Oh, I knew who Dino is. Anybody else got one? You want to admit out loud? Any guilty pleasure music? Billy Holiday. Billy Holiday. 
That's fun. Roy Orbison, that's good. That's good music there. Anybody else got one? All right, well, we're going to end tonight a little bit with some guilty pleasure music. Uh, but uh, before, I'm not going to play any or sing any. I have my iPad and phone loaded, but we don't need to do that. Um, we are going to kind of just jump into this text. But before we get into 16, let me back up into 15. If you remember, God rejects Saul. And does it for a few different reasons. Number one, uh, if you can kind of rewind your mind, go back where we were last week. He offers that sacrifice when he's supposed to wait for Samuel. Big deal. And the other thing is, in chapter 15, where I really did a terrible time unpacking this because I got, like I said, got all wound up. Um, it's that text in 15 where God tells him to destroy the Malachites. Now, the Amalekites, you remember, anybody remember who the Amalekites were and why God was like, get rid of them, wipe them out? Anybody remember anything about them? Yep, as they're on their way to the promised land, the Amalekites are the ones that come in behind and they start picking off the old, the elderly, you know, they're, they're picking off the weak and we literally just come through raiding parties. And so you get a picture, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Israelites moving to this promised land and all of a sudden you're at the head, you know, the army is leading, the military is leading up in front and all of a sudden you start hearing screaming and yelling and the Amalekites are swept through and white people out and then just gone, they're gone. And, and so just this constant frustration to where there's an utter hatred for him. So in 15, uh, we'll read a little bit of it. Um, it says Samuel, uh, Samuel said to Saul, he says, I'm the Lord, uh, I'm the one the Lord sent to anoint you, a king of all his people. So listen now to the message from the Lord. Verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I'll punish him, Malachites, for what they did to Israel uh, when they waylaid them. Man, you get a picture of that, that waylaid. I mean, it is just, the, the, the imagery on that is just vicious. I mean, they were a wicked, mean, cruel people to the Israelites. And so when you look at the judgment here, um, I don't know if you've ever had a righteous indignation when you watch TV and and you see your fellow brothers and sisters getting their heads cut off uh, by Al-Qaeda. And you're thinking, man, I'd like to do something about that right now. Um, you know, you're thinking that in this story for the Israelites, this was their grandparents. These were the people that were sick. It was anyone who fell behind, young uh, anybody who, who had a hard time keeping up, they just waylaid them. They just slaughtered them. It says, uh, it says no, go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. We talked about this text. The reason why God says totally is this is not the kind of war where you're doing it just to take over possessions. Um, they don't have, there's no prison system. There's nowhere to lock them up. They've already been told to drive them out of the land. The Amalekites haven't left. They're still there. They need to go and they're not leaving. And so your only option is you either destroy them, because, well, there is the only option, because they're not leaving. But at this point, God is saying, I do not want you to get rich off of them. I'm not want you to, to, to take all their stuff. Well, you guys know the story. We talked about it last week. Saul does what he's supposed to do, kind of, and not wholeheartedly. It says, verse 7, then Saul attacked the Malachites all the way uh, from Havilashur, uh, east of Egypt. Verse 8, he took Agag, king of the Malachites, alive with all of his people. He totally destroyed them with a sword. But Saul... And the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves, the lambs, everything that was good. It says these, uh, they were unwilling, key word, they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. And this is the point where God just says, man, I'm done. Um, you can imagine if you've got, if, if you know, picture yourself, you know, as a, an officer in the military and you are in the middle of a difficult situation, and you know, what do you do when you've got somebody who, in the middle of battle, will not obey an order? 
just will not do what you tell them. And he's got time and time again now with Saul saying, I've given two consecutive orders, and he's disobeyed them both. And, and not, only, you know, not only does Saul disobey, but if you notice the phrase in there, look what else he does. Uh, he uses the word, but Saul and the army. So it's not just Saul here. Saul's now leading others astray. Saul's leading an entire army to go the wrong direction. Then the next word that says at the very beginning, it says, uh, these, uh, they were unwilling to destroy. And so now you've got all of a sudden, it's not just one man that's impacted. It's not just one man that's infected. It's now infected the entire army. And now you've got an entire army who's not aligning with God anymore. And the Lord's like, uh, we're done. I can't deal with this. I've got absolute insubordination now, not just with my king, but with the entire ranks of Israel. You know, the army is no longer obeying. And so God has got massive problems here that he's got to address with, uh, with his king, with his army. So the Lord of the Lord came to Samuel, says, I'm grieved uh, that I've made Saul king because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Now understand what it says, I'm grieved that I've made Saul my king. It's not God saying that I made a mistake. It's God saying, I'm grieved the way this has worked out. I'm grieved that this is what happened. Um, we get in now into issues of free will. We get into issues of did God know Saul was going to do this? Uh, we get into all kinds of issues right now. But one thing we know is God's saying, man, I really wish it would have worked this way. This is not how it's supposed to go. Early in the morning, Samuel got up, went out to meet Saul. Uh, but he was told Saul's gone to Carmel. Uh, there he set up a monument in his own honor. And he's turned and gone down to Gilgal. Okay, so now you get a guy who is, you know, twice disobeyed God, and now it says, the, the, it's interesting the word he uses, you know, he set up a monument or an altar in his own honor. Can you just see the degradation of this guy's heart? He's just going downhill. He's not giving, you know, glory to God at all. He's not giving any honor to God. And now he's literally built his own statue that he knows people are going to bow down and worship. This king's just getting bad fast. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord blessed you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. And man, for me, that feels like, you know, when my kids know they're in trouble and they hurry up to meet me to act like everything's okay. And I'm like, bull, it is not okay. I can tell by the way you're acting right now. And you can almost hear, hear that tone in Saul's voice. And then Samuel says, What then is a bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is that lowing of cattle I hear? <laughs> I wonder what that eye contact looks like at that moment. Between Samuel and Saul. Can't imagine that tension. Like I can almost see Samuel's jaw locking up, you know, and just tensing a little bit. I can almost go, and you can hear in the background, Saul's rushed away from the army. He's met this prophet that's rushing up. He's standing there ready to meet him. He's like, hey man, did everything you said. You, you, you can head on back to Ram. I got it. Did everything you said. Meet him at Gilgal. Gilgal's a special place that belongs to God. We've already read about Gilgal, Gilgal earlier. So in a special place, it's supposed to be consecrated. Saul built a monument to himself. And then all of a sudden he sees the prophet coming. Hey, I got this. I got this. He runs out there and meets him like, we're all good. It's all good. Here, we got this taken care of, man. We got this all taken care of. I mean, I've been in a situation, not like this, a situation where if you're a boss or you're a leader and you've got somebody underneath you telling you everything's okay, oh, I got it. I got it. It's all good. You know, you're lying out your teeth. You don't anymore have it right now. You don't anymore know what you're doing right now. You're lying at your stinking teeth. And Sam was just like, oh, you got it, huh? <laughs> what you don't know is I can hear the sheep in the background. You're an idiot, Saul. I can hear the cattle, Saul. Not only, I love the fact he doesn't say, well, God told me. You know, he doesn't even go there. He's just like, let's just deal with the obvious. 
You know, he's probably watching Agag sitting in the tent, either beaten or eating. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know he's treating Agag. Um, Saul answered, the soldiers brought back some, uh, uh, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best sheep and cattle uh, to sacrifice the Lord your God, uh, but we totally destroyed the rest. Do you sense it? Then here's a guy, as a leader, here's a, you know, a fourth issue. He's shifting blame right now. And again, for me, one of my things that, when, with the, the team that I get to lead, I'm like, dude, just tell me the truth. That's all I want. Just tell me the truth. If you just tell me what's going on, tell, like, give me the facts as they are, I can deal with that. But then when people start deflecting blame, doesn't that just drive us all crazy? When you get to somebody that's like, oh, it wasn't me, it was this person over here. And you're like, oh, really? Are you kidding me? And I'm looking at Saul going, okay, so what that means is you're a pretty incompetent leader, that you're the king, and you can't even control your own army? What does it say about your competency level? You know, what does it say about your ability to lead? Either way, we should remove you from power just because of your inability to lead your own army. That alone should forfeit this guy from being a leader. Do you see that in the text? He can't even lead his own army. He was, he's shifting blame. We don't know it's not true. But even if what he says is true, he doesn't deserve to be a leader anymore. Not his own people won't follow him and he can't keep him, he can't keep him in line. So moving on. He says, uh, stop. And I just wish I could hear the scream that came out of Samuel's voice. I wish I could hear the bite from this old man. Samuel's getting old at this point. He says, stop. He says, let me tell you what the Lord told, uh, said to me last night. Like, oh, crud, we're busted. <laughs> tell me. And I, I don't know. I try to read into what the tone sounds like. I don't know if Saul's fearful or if he's cocky. And Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them uh, until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Saul says, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. You're just lying at your teeth right there. Once you bring back Agag, you've not done what he says. He says, the soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder. Keeps on going. When, uh, you know, when to offer a sacrifice to the Lord of Gilgal. God didn't say to do that. That was never your instruction. It was never what you were told to do. And he says, but Sam replied, he says, the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Now, if there's a text that can, can convict my own heart, that one there kicks my butt every time. That's a tough phrase right there. Hebrews gets into the same text and the same phrasing, and it nails me. Because sometimes I can be able to justify my behavior over the fact that, well, God, you know I love you. God, you know I serve you. Well, God, what about this? God, what about this? Well, God, I've done this. I've done that. And, and it's easy to justify our actions, you know, based on the fact of the sacrifices we've made for God. Whether it be a sacrifice of money, a sacrifice of time, a sacrifice of talent. We can justify our behavior. And God's saying, it's not about your sacrifice. Get by me off. And we know that there have been the stories in history of people who thought that if they gave enough money to God, they could go to heaven. If they served God long enough, that that would somehow... It's not an issue of penance. You don't pay penance to make right with God. It's not how this works. And at the end of the day, it comes down to this. God wants obedience, not sacrifice. He just wants, he wants obedience. And you can give all the money in the world, and it won't make you right with God. And at this point, you know, Saul can make all the excuses in the world. And, and what God wanted from him was not sacrifice. 
He wanted obedience. Hebrews hits on this. We won't get into that tonight. Um, he says it's better uh, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than, than the fat of rams. For rebellion, here it is. Rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance, like the evil of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you as king. So we'll keep on going. He just basically just blasts Saul through the rest of that. Hits Saul left and right. Uh, he says in, uh, in verse 26, You've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Now at that point in time, we know a couple of things. Uh, we know that they've gotten a few more swords because they defeated the, the Philistines. We know that story about Jonathan. So they're armed now. But I wonder what this old prophet's doing as he's standing eyeball to eyeball. Old man, and we know Saul's a big boy. And I cannot imagine in that moment, army in the background, cattle, sheep, Agag, the pride that he's got on the line in that moment as he's standing there with the sword on his side. Here's this old man saying, the Lord's rejected you as king. And I'm just looking at it going, one, Saul, Samuel is a brazen, brazen man, tough as nails, to be able to just stand there and say, take it, bud. And then I also look at Saul's heart in this moment where he, does, he is able to step back and I just cut off his head. Because uh, Samuel fears for that later on. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and he tore, and it tore. Samuel said to them, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. <laughs> Aye. He was the glory of Israel, does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should not change. And I do appreciate this about Saul. And Saul replied, I have sinned. Then he should have just shut up. <laughs> he should have just stopped right there. Just shut up, Saul. But instead, but please honor me before the elders of my people before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Um, and I, I appreciate the underhanded attempt to say, let's go bring glory to God anyway. But, but the whole opening phrase, I, what, I, what I read there, maybe I'm reading too much in it, I, am, I almost read it as Saul saying, hey man, I'm really embarrassed right now. Can you come with me and appear with me before the elders and before everyone else uh, right now? Because they, maybe they can't hear what we're saying. They can't see what's going on. They can see we're arguing. I don't know if everybody can hear this entire conversation. Uh, I kind of think they can't because Saul goes out to meet him. And he kind of says, hey, uh, can, you, can you come in here with me? And Samuel does that. And then watch this. this there, I have to go through all of this because this will matter here in a second. It says, Samuel said, bring Agag king of the Malachites. Agag came to him confidently, thinking, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your, will your mother be childless among women. I, I really would love... Have you guys ever seen Tombstone? I really want this to be kind of a Tombstone moment with you know, Doc Holliday saying this or Wyatt Earp saying it. I kind of wish I had kind of that gravelly voice of, you know, of Wyatt this moment or Doc... Well, Docs wasn't gravelly. And just kind of that Western draw when he says, as your sword has made women childless, and all of a sudden he kind of, Agag kind of cocks his head sideways, like, well, he's like, oh, yeah. And he says, uh, so will your mother be childless among women? And there's this pause right now where Agag's like, oh, no. <laughs> you can imagine the tension in that moment, like, oh. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord of Gilgal. And then Samuel left for Ramah. <laughs> But Samuel went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Uh, Saul went up to his home there. Uh, and until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again. 
Though Samuel mourned, I love that, Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. And again, by grieved, it's not God saying, I messed up. It's God saying, I didn't want it to be this way. This wasn't how it was supposed to be. Okay, we have to go through all of that because there's some important things that are going to get set up in 16. So let's jump into 16 now, all right? Um, great stuff coming. I've got to turn on my notes here. Here we go. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Where do you think the mourning comes from? I mean, he's taken Samuel's job. Disappointment. Disappointment? Yeah? What else? I don't want to go into names because I don't know who listens to this podcast. Uh, but I'm not afraid to... to it's, it's not an issue of fear to have to terminate people from a position. I've had to do that. I hate doing it. I never, ever enjoy it. I'm willing to do it. I've had to do it. It's part of it. But it's never something that I like. And I can tell you the times that I've had to do that still grieves me to this day. It, I don't ever, I hate it. I hate it. And I've met people that kind of like it. And like it's like, hey, that was, I, I don't know why. I'm like, really? How, how can you like this? It's like, I don't like disrupting people's lives. I don't like disrupting their dreams. I don't like disrupting um, the vision of what they want to do. Uh, but there have been times where I have to just say, this isn't working. And, uh, and I wonder, part of me, if, if Samuel looks at it, and he's the first, I mean, the story of how he finds Saul, and he anoints Saul, and here's the king, and yeah, he doesn't want it, but he's the one that ushers it in. And I wonder if it's just a part of Samuel that's going, man, how did I let us get to this? And I wonder if Samuel's just looking at it going, if my boys, if I hadn't appointed them to be judges, if, I, if my boys would have been better behaved, if Israel would have been, if I would have been a better leader for Israel, they would have waited a little bit longer. I think he looks at this guy Saul going, this is a train wreck. This guy never aspired to be king. He got appointed to be king. Half this is my fault as a leader because of, you remember the story of when his own boys are leading such poorly for Israel that the Israelites hate his own sons. They can't stand him. And I think, I wonder if Samuel looks at it and he mourns for Saul. And I wonder if he just looks at it and goes, man, I didn't want it to work out this way either. When I anointed him, I wanted it to work. I wanted it to work. And I wonder if there's a part, I'm, just, I'm reading into the text, but I'm trying to figure out what that mourning is like of Samuel going, I'm embarrassed about the way it worked. I'm looking at this guy now. His life's completely disrupted. Everything's thrown apart. And, and if Samuel's looking at it going, and part of this is I created part of this mess. I appointed my boys to be judges, and my judges made everyone in Israel want a king. And this is what we got. And now I feel bad for, every, for the way everything's working out for him. And I want this little piece of him just going, this is a failure. This is a mess. And I don't, I don't even know how to clean it up. And I've had those moments where I still grieve over people who had to release. Still mourn it. Still sad over it. Still hate it. Never get comfortable with it. Um, but it's just, it's part of what you have to do at times. And I don't do it often. But when I do, it hurts. I don't like it. Um, moving on. Sorry. Um, he, says, uh, he says, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king? And the next thing I think is important for us as well. He says, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. Tell you what, there's a lot of lessons in there, and there's a lot of different reasons for mourning. But one thing that we do see in Scripture is, you know, Solomon talks about it, man. There's a, a time for mourning, time for happiness. And this is one of those moments 
where God says, as a leader, get off your rear, get up, take the horn, get the oil in it, and move on. And that's the other thing I've had to realize. Even in the midst of that morning, at some point, you've got to get up and move on. You can't just stay here. Same thing's happened to David later on. When David and Bathsheba, Uriah dies, baby dies, he lays down, was it three days, he grieves, and finally he's like, he gets up, he gets dressed, and he goes back to work. I think there's a part of this that we can all learn from Samuel. Yep, there's a point to grieve. You can grieve the loss of a dream. You can grieve the loss of things, the way things went. But at some point, you've got to get out of bed or you've got to get up from this depression, get up from the despair. And I'm, I'm not talking about clinical depression. I'm not talking about ongoing depression. That's not what I'm getting at here. I'm talking about frustration and just mourning. You've got to get up and move on. You have to. And I do think there's a difference. Okay, hopefully you can see I'm drawing a distinction there. Uh, but at this point, it's like, you've got to get up and go. Let's move. We can't just sit here. And, you know, there have been times with my team when something goes wrong, and I'm like, all right, that didn't go well. We can't just sit here, all right? There's nothing, nothing good in this space we're sitting in right now. And I know we're mad. I know we're frustrated. I know that didn't work. And I know it was a, it was a failure, and, and that's part of it. But if we stay here, is there anything beneficial that comes from this? And I think God's just looking at him saying, Samuel, get off your rear. Time to go. We're not just going to sit here all day. And, uh, and I think there's always a lesson for us to learn in that going, I don't know how long it is. I don't know how much time it is. I don't know how long Samuel sits there and mourns. But he mourns long enough that God says, enough. Enough. Get up. Let's go. So he fills him with oil. He says, I'm sending you on your way. He says, I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. So go back to 15 whenever he has to stand in front of Saul. There must be something in Saul's eyes in that moment, that makes Samuel say these words. Got to be something, man. There's got to be something in the text, something we're not seeing, something we're not understanding right now that makes Samuel go, uh-uh, dude's going to kill me. I don't know if it's when he cuts off Agag, cuts off his head, or if it stabs him, kills him, whatever he does, but there's something in that moment when he looks in Saul's eyes that he knows, I went one go around with him, I don't know if we can go another one. And he's like... So now you get this old man who just stood toe-to-toe with the king a little bit afraid about what this means. How old do you think Samuel is? He's in his 60s at this point, which you've got to keep in mind. He would be about the same age as Saul, right? Saul would have been younger than him. Than his sons? Samuel's sons? Uh, I don't know. That's a great question. That's a great question. That's a, I never thought of that. You guys get the question, she's asking if Saul would have been the same age as Samuel's sons. I don't know. Never thought of that. I mean, there's probably some ways to mine into that and figure it out, but off the top of my head, I don't know. It does offer an interesting glimpse into the text, though. You know, if he looked at him as a son, almost, you know, at the time, he spent a lot of time with Saul. I mean, they, that one night, they spent all night up there talking before he anoints him, and I mean, he, he'd grown somewhat close to Saul, and that probably hurt his heart to say goodbye to Saul for that reason as well. Uh, and, and you know at this point he's never sees him again. They never really interact again. Um, that's, I, I appreciate that. It's insightful. I, I had not even considered that. Um, Samuel said, how can I go? Uh, Saul, he'll about it, you know, kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. I don't know, man. What are you thinking? Because you're thinking well, the same thing I am. Well, I'm not. I'm, oh. I'm in a different spot because I'm okay. thinking... You know, God's already told Samuel, hey, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Yep. And he's trying to console him, but Samuel's faithful to 
carry out God's commands and desires. And so he, he, he didn't want to anoint Saul, but he did it because that's what God told him to do. Hmm. And then it turns south, and he cleans up Saul's mess, kills Agar, yep. and, and hey, that's the way it is. And he's kind of looking at him, yeah, you've blown it. God's lost favor with you. You know, he turns and you don't, they don't see him again. And Samuel must be, you know, he was a judge, prophet. He, he must be a fairly bad hombre. Cause yep. Even though he's toting the heifer, they're all like, are you coming in peace? Or are you going to throw down? What's the deal here? Yes, they are. And so they're getting, Yes, they are. <laughs> you know, so he must still, yeah. you know. God, There's something God, about him that is intimidating. Be on him because he's still yeah. a man, you know. Yep. And so uh, it, he's kind of bridging all these these different factions, you know, the first king to the next king, your lineage is done. Yep. This is where, you know, we're grafted in basically. Um, so I, I look at it a little bit different. Maybe no, it's good. No, 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 it's good. I think that's a great way to look at it. It's complicated. It's messy. There's a phrase in here that it, it bothers me a little bit. Uh, let me ask you a leading question here before I show you what bothers me. What's the difference between openness and honesty? Is there a difference between openness and honesty? Is there a difference between openness and honesty? Okay. All right. Let's see, uh, are you honest with everyone? Or do you try to be? Is your aspiration say that? Like, no, let's do this. I mean, I go, is, it your, is it your aspiration to be honest with everyone? Yeah, that's an easy one. Yeah, I think everybody wants to be honest. But if you don't appear that you don't want to appear that you know everything. So. Yeah. And I just mean truth telling on the honest thing. The question for you, on, in your personal life, we'll say this. Are you, do you have the desire, like, I want to be honest with everyone? Okay. Do you intend to be honest with everyone? Yeah. Do you intend to be open with everyone? No. no. What's the difference? Some people you can trust and some people you can't. Okay. All right. Here's why this text bothers me a little bit when I read it until I, I, I can wrap my head around what God is doing. Um, follow the, the thing here. Verse 2, he says, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. All right? Watch the next line. Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Why was Saul going to Bethlehem? Why was Samuel going to Bethlehem? Why was he going? He's going to know the king. What's the reason he's given to say he's going? Those are not the same thing. It almost looks like God's telling him to tell a lie. It's almost like, What? God, you're telling Samuel to not tell the truth. It looks a little bit misleading at first. You he doesn't have to play the, the heifer card because yeah. Saul doesn't call him on it. Yeah, he doesn't. He I doesn't. Mean, it's, it's more of a, you know, a kid carrying around his blanket. Yeah, I tote this heifer with you. Yep. You may not have to use it, but yep. it gives you an excuse. But even the fact that God would do Samuel? that. Yeah, even the fact that God would do that, say, it almost looks misleading if, if you just got to this part of the story, it almost looks a little bit misleading. Like, hmm, 
Why would you say that? You're, that's not your intentions. I think at this moment, God's looking at him and he says, you know what? You're right. He might kill you. <laughs> uh, why don't we do this? You're going to offer a sacrifice. And, and that's going to be part of what I'm asking you to do as part of this anointing. A sacrifice was never part of anointing a king, just using the oil was. So, okay, go ahead, you got some... Well, I mean, and I don't know this, that's what I'm asking. I thought sacrifices were mainly male animals, and, and this is a female yeah. animal, and, you know, not necessarily the firstborn, or, you know, and so... It looks a little weird at first. What you would do with a with a heifer like this, though, is with something called a peace offering. Like, usually, if it was a sacrifice for sin or something like that, you would offer that at the temple, offer that at an altar. There was provision to offer other sacrifices that were not done at the temple. And so what this could have been, like, i, I got to remember, Jesus, help me remember. There was a moment where you could have a peace offering. And Lord, help me remember this. It's been a long time since I've studied this. And, and you may research it later on and go, that's not how it works. Here's how it works, and that's my memory. Let's say that you killed somebody, uh, be it on accident or whatever it was, that you had the opportunity in that place to sacrifice an animal and offer a peace offering. Okay? That, that's, that's one thing you could have done. Maybe if there was a dispute between families. So with him walking with his heifer as a sacrifice, and by Old Testament covenant, there was ability to offer. If it was an atonement sacrifice, that's a designated spot, that's set up. And so at this moment... Samuel very well could have been going saying, there is another sacrifice. Maybe it's another thing he's needing to go do. Another one of those jobs he's got. I don't know. But if you really look at the text, there's something in there that's a little like, feels a little weird. I think right now this is a difference between openness and honesty. I think what Samuel is about to do is incredibly honest. Yes, I'm taking a heifer with me and I have a full intent of offering a sacrifice. That I know something going on in that area. I'm going to take this heifer. I, I know of a situation that needs to be dealt with. I've got the heifer with me. And he says, hey, just tell me you're going to offer that sacrifice. So he takes the heifer with him. But it's not completely open about his intentions. Make sense? Uh, I think this is, yeah. I, I think uh, this reminds me a lot of the story with Rahab. Yeah, it's a great one. Because yeah, Rahab's a great example. It seems like in the case of, of life, when it's a, a godly person to save that person's life or people, their, yep. their there's a shelter. Yeah. And it may very well have been at this moment, God says, yeah, take that heifer. If he finds out, you're a dead man. And they never, he never sees him again. We know that. Uh, let's keep going on. It says, invite Jesse to the sacrifice. Now, keep in mind, if this would have been one of those, I wish I could find that, because I don't want to just read too much into that. Uh, man. Man, I wish I could remember that, that how those, those sacrifices worked for a peace offering. Um, but you've got to think about it. I'm pretty sure that's how it worked. Imagine if that is the case. If you're Jesse and you get invited to the sacrifice. Okay? First of all, words out, this guy just killed Agag. This guy, you don't see him very often. You live six miles on one side of Jerusalem. He lives six miles on the other. It's not like it's... It's not like you're driving across town to see him. Nobody's walking 12 miles just to go to little... Bethlehem's a highly insignificant town. It's like somebody saying, showing up in your hometown, you know, coming out to meet you in Ornogo saying, you know, hey, uh, I need to drop by and have a conversation with you. And you're like, oh, crud. <laughs> like, oh, great, man. I think at this point, even Jesse's got to be a little bit like, uh, prophet wants to see me? Okay. What do you, what do you want? 
Now, Jesse is, his family is not highly significant, but Jesse is, does have wealth. We'll see that later on from something we see in David's life. Um, he's got a lot of boys, but I'm even looking at Jesse when he says, invite Jesse to sacrifice, and I'll show you what to do. You're to anoint the Lord for me, uh, for the one I indicate. And I wonder what Jesse's thinking, like, why have I been invited to this sacrifice? What have I got to do with this prophet? He just killed Agag. What's your, what's your agenda here, prophet? What do you want? Why am I here? What's happening? He didn't know. And I can imagine, you know, Jesse's at home that night, starts getting ready, getting his clothes on. His wife's like, where are you going? Uh, baby, I get, get cold to a meeting. Uh, what do you mean? Well, there's uh, prophets coming. The one that just killed Agag? Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, she's tying his tie, straightening up a little bit. Uh, you know, he's pulling his shoes up a little bit. Got to go meet with the prophet. What's the prophet want? I don't know, baby. I got no idea. She's like, our life insurance policy up to date. You know, just it's that kind of stuff. Like, oh, man. He walks out. He doesn't, we don't know. He's got no real connection with him right now. So moving on, it says, Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They trembled. They're scared to death of this guy. And now you're Jesse, and you just peed a little bit, because you're not even one of the elders of the town, and you've been invited to the meeting. goes on, it says, um, he says, they ask. And really, the, the Hebrew implies it's more like a leader ask. I don't know how many elders this is. We don't know, but they put one guy forward, and this guy with uh, you know, his voice cracking like he's going through puberty says, uh, do you come in peace? <laughs> you get a sense of fear. This feels like a showdown. Samuel's just kind of walking up, and it's just surreal. He's got a cow with him. <laughs> Showing up in your doorstep, you know, he's probably a little surly looking, got a little wild eye on his look. You know, he's taken that Nazarite vow, and from what we know, he's continued it. We don't know. I assume he has continued the Nazarite vow that, that his mom put on him. And here is this wild eye looking prophet that just gutted a king with a heifer beside him, wanting to meet in your town. And you're just a podunk little town. Like, why are you here? Why are you here? What do you want? You know, Jesse's standing back behind the elders like, I... I don't know what I did. I don't know what I did. Keep reading. So Samuel said, yes, in peace. <laughs> I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Now what that would have meant is they would have had to go back home, clean themselves up, bathe, change clothes. They would have had to get ready for the sacrifice. It's not something you just show up for. Uh, and he says that he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So now they're all like, okay, he's come in peace. We're good. Why are we all coming? What? Why does he want all of us for? He says, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely, uh, this is what, uh, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Why, they, why, why would that, that phrase come up? Bingo. Yeah, because Saul, Saul is tall. And he says, for I've rejected. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Great, we've all heard that text. What a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful text. Um, Jesse calls next son, had him pass in front of Samuel, said this isn't the one either. And I don't know what that, what that moment looks like. I've seen VeggieTales version of it, and it's awesome. But I just don't, I really don't know what this, what this looks like as... For some reason, I've almost got like, you know, Miss USA pageant type thing happening with each, each boy walking by, circling, doing his pose. I, I don't, it's just a weird, a weird thing. Uh, Jesse said, a Shemal passed by. Samuel said, nor is the Lord chosen this one. And I don't know if, God, if he's saying it out loud or not, or if this is just a quiet conversation with him and God. Uh, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, 
The Lord has not chosen these. Hmm. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? And they're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Here's, here's a time to version just a little bit. And what, what time is it? I've got to watch my time tonight. I don't want to do what I did last week. Um, this is a, a unique time for us to, to kind of dive in and, and, and think through this just a little bit. Um, it's interesting that he doesn't view all of his children the same. We have this rule in our house. If one of my kids walks up and says, Dad, who's your favorite? I will always say, oh, you are. And the next kid will say, no, don't, don't believe him. Watch this. Dad, who's your favorite? I go, oh, you are. Then the third will come by. It doesn't matter who says, I'm always like, oh, you're my favorite. And then they'll say, you know, then the next day I'll keep going through this. I was like, shh, don't tell the others. Come on, you know the truth. Keep it a secret. It's between us. You're my favorite. And the others were over here like, no, no, no. I was like, shh, I'm just saying that to make them feel better. You know, we just keep doing this. Like, it's just this constant game we play about, about who's, who's your favorite. We have this endearing beauty about David. This endearing beauty about his relationship with his dad and with his family. But I wonder if it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. I mean, this kid doesn't even get invited to the party. You're like, well, there were sheep to take care of. Hey, listen, man, Jesse had ways to cover that. When the prophet shows up and he says, bring all your sons, you bring all your sons. But this guy, this is a guy you're absolutely trembling in front of. This is a massive opportunity for honor. You'd have found a neighbor. You'd have found somebody who would have watched your animals at that point in time. This is not just mere, I don't think this is just mere oversight. Oh, I forgot about him. This almost, in my mind, gets really close to smacking of abuse where it's just utterly dismissive of David. He's this young guy that's basically out there doing the slave labor. We know that he tends the sheep all the time. We know he's the youngest. We know he's had no help, that he's had to fight off a bear and a lion on his own, for crying out loud, with no help from his brothers. We know he gets shoved out in the middle of the pasture, which is not like a pasture here in you know, southwest Missouri where you've got fences you can see forever. I mean, he's walking these things up through crags, everything else. He's got to deal with robbers. People might want to steal them, animals, all kinds of stuff. What this boy is dealing with is no small thing. I think I told you guys a story when uh, I was in Tanzania and I got a chance to talk with the Maasai. Just amazing warriors, man. Two things that, that, that blew me away. I'll tell you about well, three things. It was really kind of cool. Number one, it's really interesting, uh, you know, they're talking about, then. Uh, it's just one guy telling me, I, I, I don't know if it represents all Maasai, but I was asking him questions, because I like to ask questions, and they're explaining the, the you know, the, the loops they've got in their ears. You know, we see a guy with gauged out ears that's working at a, at a coffee shop, not quite the same reasons why the Maasai do it. Uh, they said that literally they will link those lobes in battle, and then when they go to war, or they go to fight, you'll link it with another guy. And if he gets scared and run, it'll rip out your ear. And there's nothing that can show less dignity than for your ear to be torn out. And so you will literally charge into battle with this guy next to you. But you would never, you would never run because you'd, you'd rip your buddy's ear out. And, 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 and not just the pain of it, the utter humiliation of it. Of, of for the rest of your life looking at this guy and knowing his ear's like that because I ran. I was like, whoa, that's a whole different reason for gauged ears than, than I ever knew. Second thing that I thought was amazing 
was that a guy looked at me and, uh, and talked about one of the reasons why the Maasai always wear red. And, uh, and of course, this is just one guy that's with the Maasai. This is one guy telling me these stories. He probably could, could talk to other Maasai, would give you different stories. And he, he talked about the reason why he was Maasai, the reason why they, you know, we wear red. He says, because if we get stabbed in battle, we don't want our friend to feel bad for us. He says, we don't want the blood to show up. And I was like, Phew, all right then, Wow. He says, that way if we get stabbed, blood's flowing, it's red, they, 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 won't, they won't notice, they'll keep fighting. You know, we don't want anybody to feel, feel bad for us. It's like, okay. But the, the third story that I thought was the most amazing was uh, you'd see these little boys, you know, they're little guys, out in the middle of this big savanna. I mean, massive savannas. You'd kind of see one here, one way, way, way over there. I mean, they're all spread out. You know, they're probably some five, six hundred yards apart. It's not like they're close to each other. You know, he's got his group of goats that he's watching over. And uh, that night we went to a Maasai village. And uh, we showed up. It was all women and, and little kids. All women, little kids. We bought, I bought some jewelry from these ladies. I was literally buying it off of them, stuff they had made to give my wife. And uh, I asked the guy, I go, where are all the, all the men at? He's like, oh, they don't live here. I was like, what? He said, yeah, they don't. And he pointed to this camp way far off because the men live pointed way at this tree, way, way far off. He goes, there, there's the men's camp over there. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, yeah, none of the, none of the men. They don't, the, the men have their camp, and this is the women's camp. I was like, yeah, really? And he kind of unpacked the story for me. And he said, and there's some little boys running around. I was like, what about them? He says, well, he says, the boys stay with their mom. He says that they have to be willing to charge a lion by the age of six. And if, they, if they'll do that, then they're, they're allowed to go live with the men. But until a boy will charge at a lion to defend his herd, he's not allowed to move in with the men. Oh like, whoa, I need, to, I need to step it up for my six-year-old right now. Like, good night. I can't get him to charge at a squirrel in the yard. I'm like, come on now. No, he would. I'm teasing. But, but look at this. When you think of David the shepherd, I, I guess I'm encouraging you is, uh, love the fact we got this neat place called Precious Moments with the cute little figurines, and there's the little shepherd boy David. He is no Precious Moments figurine. Okay, he, he is one vicious, tough, mean kid. And he has been left alone a whole lot. Alone in isolation without company all day long. Uh, and he is bored out of his ever-loving mind. Out the, watching these, there's nothing to do but, but watch over him. Walk around, kick rocks, and throw a slingshot. That's all he does all day long. Out there by himself. And I don't know what his brothers are doing, but they're not with him. Uh, and we especially know he's not with him now. Um, so part of the point is, I, I don't want to just throw Jesse under the bus, but we know that he's playing favorites. Uh, we know that, uh, that he doesn't even include his own kid. Uh, and it, 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 it bothers me. Uh, there's another time, and I wish I was trying to figure out, I've got it written down in my notes somewhere, where David talks about uh, how, his, how, his, how his parents rejected him. And I wish I could find that text. I'd never looked at it in that light. And man, it's killing me. Killing me that I can't find it. I've got it in here somewhere. Mm. Let me just take a second so I can find it. There we go. Somebody read Psalm 2710. I think that's the text. If I wrote it down correctly. Because I didn't... I was Russian. I think it's Psalm 2710. Is that it? Let me look here. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me out. Yeah. I wonder, when you read that, 
I read that in a little, a little different lens than I'd ever read it before. Because he doesn't spend a lot more time. He'll go back. He's going to live with his parents. He's going to be taken away from them. He'll go back and then he'll leave again. And it's just an interesting thing for David to write in his journal is that 2710. And so I'd never read that verse in that light. Uh, but we do know this, that dad's got, he's got the favorite boys and he leaves one kid sitting out there watching them out in the middle of nowhere. And we also know that when David later on, we'll see in the next chapter, when he does show up uh, to, to Goliath in battle, his own brothers completely disrespect him. His own brothers just, just dog him and diss him and, uh, and, and think he's nothing. And so I think we might want to get a little different view of David than maybe, I'm getting a little different view of David than what I've ever had before. Uh, this text is maybe see it differently. I'm like, hmm, hmm. This is not an accident by Jesse. And you can imagine, you know, it's Christmas time. <laughs> you know, go to, there's a lot of bad fathers in Scripture. Uh, you know, when you look at, you know, at what, what happens with Joseph getting be, he's played, played favorites with, and because of that, he gets human trafficked. David gets a father right now that plays favorites. He gets a father that's a bit distant. He gets a father that won't even invite him to the party. And he gets a father right now that's not a good example. And I'm going to tell you what, that will play out in David's life in spades. David is a man after God's own heart, but he's not a very good dad. And we'll get to that later on in this text. The way he handles things with Absalom and Tamar, train wreck. The way he leads his own son, mess. Mess, 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 mess. And I kind of wonder how much of that is related to him and Jesse. So maybe I'm reading way too much in the text, but that moment brought uh, Psalm 2710 to light in a way I'd never thought of before. We're moving on. Sorry, too much. Uh, I think one thing we can look at is we learn from this is, you know, don't be Jesse when you think about how you handle your kids. And uh, my dad was telling me a story today uh, about we, we sing all the praises of, uh, of Ronald Reagan. He was talking about an article that he read that came out. And uh, Ronald Reagan writes in one of the books he's got, uh, talks about his two kids. And you know how many kids Ronald Reagan had? But at times he wouldn't even talk about all of his kids. And, and we look at him, and he was a fantastic, just somebody who's a fantastic leader doesn't always make them a fantastic father. And, uh, and we'll see that play out in David's life. Part of the reason why we have the divided kingdom in Israel is David's inability to be a dad. He, you'll, we'll get to this later on. He just completely blows it with his boy. And uh, Absalom ends up going down at a gate. He's underwriting his, his, his dad's kingdom. He, he wants nothing more than to talk to his dad, and David will have nothing to do with him. Nothing to do with him. Instead of saying, we need to work this out. And David never goes to him. It ends up causing this massive division between him and Absalom. He ends up running from his own son. Blah, blah, blah. We're in 16. We're not that far down. Let's keep going. It says, uh, where are we at? Lost my spot. Um, oh, yeah. Keep going. It says, uh, says, the Lord has not chosen these. So we asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. And even the butt statement says that. He's not like, oh, yeah, I do have one more. He's like, oh, yeah, there's one, but he's tending the sheep. Um, sin form will not sit down until he arrives. Whew. You picture that? All the brothers have to stand for the little brother? <laughs> how far out is this kid is what I wonder. Like, how long does that take? What is the awkward silence, you know? This is like waiting for somebody at a surprise party, you know, with people you don't really know. You get that awkward moment where you all just kind of stand around quiet. I just picture Samuel not being a very good small talk guy. In my mind, he's not. And I just picture he's like, we will not sit down until he gets here. 
all the elders are like, okay. <laughs> Everybody just kind of stands there quietly. No one's eating dinner. No one's doing anything. It's like the awkward surprise party waiting for David to walk in. It's like David walks in, surprise. He's the only one that probably doesn't get cleaned up for the party. You know, he probably comes right in the field. He just cut, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, he gets summoned like, hey, your dad wants to see you. And who goes to get him? I, I wonder that. I doubt it's Jesse. I don't know. Who do they send? A servant? Like, go get David. Somebody's got to oh, take off running and go find this kid. You know, he's probably out. He, we know he's out tending sheep. And it's not like that's happening right around. I mean, those are going to be out there where they can graze them. So somebody's out there, you know, and I, I almost picture him running up to this cluster. No, that's not David. Right up there he is. See him out there throwing the slingshot, trying to knock birds out of the air, stuff like that. Here's David out there messing around. David, you know, what? Your dad needs you. Okay, you stay and watch the sheep. He takes off running to go meet the prophet and his dad. Says, so he sent and he had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Only person that gets described this way in scripture. Only one. Uh, Ruddy is interesting. Uh, It's an interesting phrase. It means red. And I'm looking at that as, in my mind, probably two or three different ways. Some people say he might have had a reddish hue to his hair. Uh, Other people say that this is a kid that literally lived, you know, out in the sun all the time, in the sun all the time. And so his skin just had kind of that dark, that red, you know, muddy hue to it. You know, he wasn't, you know, if you go back even in our culture, there was a time where being dark and tan was not perceived as something as beautiful. You know, now we're like, oh, wow. You know, at some point, if you were a little bit plump and had fair skin, that was beauty. You know, you go back and look at some of the paintings we see, the way beauty was described in the 1800s, 1700s, is not how beauty is described today. And so today you'd look at David and, and honestly, probably he and Joseph would have been, by all texts, it's interesting this per- that he puts it in there. David was gorgeous is what it means. Not trying to be weird. I'm saying what the text says. He would have been probably the most handsome guy uh, in, in the Old Testament, one of the most handsome guys in Scripture. Uh, he and Joseph. Joseph was also another one where he would have walked in and was like, whew, that's a good-looking guy. And David walks in, and he's ruddy and handsome. Uh, and what we know is that uh, uh, he's ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And it's just... That's just a weird thing to write about another guy, but they do it because they want to describe it. And probably David's pretty built. He's a teenager at this time, and he's probably just a great-looking guy. So there you go. I'm done with that. Um, <laughs> the Lord says, rise and anoint him. He's the one. Whew. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And Samuel went to Ramah. Now, I, I can't imagine that moment. David's dirty. This oil is going over in his head. I'm sure there's, it's probably muddy on his face. He takes his horn and he, of oil and he pours it over David's head. And that is a sacred anointing right there. That's a big deal. Israel anointed their kings not with crowns like we do today. They anointed their kings with oil. And so for him to pour that oil, that's why when Jesus' feet get anointed with oil, it's such a big deal. That anointing with oil is important. And he pours that oil over David's head, pouring down. At that point, this kid's like, what is going on right now? What is happening? How they keep this thing, here's a part of the text I don't get, and I don't have a rationale to explain it. This happens, and then he goes, he's going to go live with Saul. How does this not get out? How does he stay alive? 
How does he get anointed? And here in a minute, he's going to go work for Saul. We'll get to that here in a second. How does that happen? Is this a secret kept? I don't know. I don't have the answer for it. I'm confused in my own life about how that plays out. But we'll keep reading. Okay. The most important dividing point in all of 1 and 2 Samuel is right here. Okay. This is it. If you've got a, if you've got a teeter-totter, this is the tilt moment. It says this. It says, The Lord came upon David in power. Then Samuel went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Spirit of the Lord comes on David, not in. Watch the difference. He comes on David, and the Spirit of the Lord departs Saul. That is a difference right there. That is, that's the most important shift. It is not about when David actually becomes king. It has already occurred. Boom. The tables are turned. Everything's changed. It says, And an evil spirit from the Lord tormented, Saul, tormented him. Oh, yeah, yeah. That gets confusing, doesn't it? You're like, what? What? Okay, let's just unpack a few things here. First of all, when it says this, the Spirit of God and the way it interacted with humanity is different here than it is in the book of Acts. Over and over, the word, the phrase we get is the Spirit of the Lord came on. It came on Samson. It came on this person. It came on David. It came on Saul. And usually, almost every time, it was either for a feat of strength, a feat of leadership, a supernatural ability to do a task. Okay, for us, the Spirit of the Lord, it comes on us differently. We have something that the Old Testament did not have, and that the Holy Spirit resides in us. That's a New Testament thing that happens through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus when he says he's going to leave us the guarantee. He's going to leave us, you know, something called, called the Holy Spirit that will reside in us. Now, no doubt the Spirit can still come on people in power. The Spirit can still, can do, still do miraculous things in and through people. But this is different. This was a special anointing for a specified period of time, which is what Saul had. And so it's not a matter of, Saul, of, of him taking away Saul's salvation. It's not what this is. Okay, We look at this day that, man, if you lose the Holy Spirit, you've lost your salvation. Apples and oranges. Please don't compare the two. Holy Spirit act in the New Testament is not Holy Spirit act in the Old Testament. Same Spirit, same Spirit, totally acting in different ways. In the same way that Jesus would show up to talk to Abraham, and the way he worked through Abraham, okay? No doubt. No doubt that's the same God, but it's different how, God, how Jesus worked in the New Testament. Same God, working in two different places. Holy Spirit, same God, working in two different ways. He came on people to perform specific tasks, he comes and dwells inside of believers today. Completely different ways. I don't want you thinking that this means, oh, Saul's going to hell. That's what that means. Now let's get to the more controversial part, the more difficult part, when it says, an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Thoughts on that one? Before I just jump in and start talking about it. What are your thoughts on that? Okay. Okay. Talk about if you guys are listening on the podcast, the the correlation being between Pharaoh, how God uses him to fulfill His plan. Okay. Yeah, hardens his heart. Somebody else got a, got a theory or a glimpse or an understanding on that? Give me your thoughts on it. That's dead on. I think that's a great way to look at it. That when God removed his spirit, you got the culmination of everything Saul was becoming. Everything he was. Huh? 
I know. No, I. No, I don't think it was a matter of one spirit having it on them. I think God has the ability to to put His spirit on many at that point in time. It was on Saul. Yeah. Yeah. And and part of it is we don't know time frame. What we do, what we know is there's only there's only one verse separating when God takes the anointing from Saul and gives it to David. That's one verse. We don't know how long it is. But yeah, it does it does seem like okay, this is going on. He takes it away in in fifteen. We get all the way to the end, you know, halfway through sixteen, and now now the spirit's finally being removed. I don't know. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Don't know, and I, I hope you're okay with me at times saying I don't know. I, I have to be okay saying that at times, like yeah, I don't know. And, and even the, the phrase that's really confusing is when it says an evil spirit from. Oh, whoa! I, I've got a little bit of view. Uh, part of it is I look at it, and when Jesus sent the pigs, if you remember the story, taking it, you guys remember it. When Jesus allowed the pigs, uh, the spirits to go into the pigs. Who is in control in that moment? Jesus. Jesus was in total control when he meets the demoniac. Is that Mark chapter 6, I think? Is that Mark 6? I don't remember. I think it's Mark 6. When he sees the demoniac and he's tormented and he says, Who are you? And you know, Jesus says, Who are you? They said, We are, we are legion, for we are many. And then they beg, you know, Please don't let us, let, us, let us go into the pigs. And God says, All right, I'll allow it. They run down and, and, and go, into the, go into, the, into the sea there and drown. I don't know what this means. Uh, it, it is a, it's a difficult text. Um, what we know is that that this evil spirit brings on some crazy things. If you look at chapter eighteen, verses ten and twelve, look ahead a little bit. You'll see what happens with the evil spirit. It says the next day, an evil spirit from the Lord came forcefully upon Saul. Again, not in. It's coming on. Okay, there's a difference. I think it's. Uh, uh, you know, it says that an evil spirit tormented him. It's not that I don't think that it's that he's demon possessed. Okay. Yeah. Yes. It plays out in Saul as a psychological disorder. He begins going insane. That this tor- that what it means by tormented. Um, what it literally means is that he loses his mind. He starts going crazy. Um, but in, in 18, it'll go on to say, it says, while David was playing the harp, as he usually did, you know, Saul has a spear in his hand. He hurls it at David. David eludes it. You guys know that story. Um, I, I think in this text what I would say is, uh, in my mind, God says, all right, you've chosen to reject me. I'm going to allow this to happen. That evil's pursuing you, and I'm going to allow this to take place. I'm allowing this to happen in your life. That if you've rejected me, you've rejected my commands, you've rejected my ways, you've not done anything I want to do. Because of that, Saul, because you won't do anything I ask you to do, I'm going to let you have what you want. And, and you're going to, this, is, you're going to, this is going to happen to your own demise. And so the evil pursuing Saul, the evil coming after him, God says, I'll allow it. Isn't it weird that he takes a little bit of comfort in David up? Spirits with David, so just being near David gives Saul a little bit of comfort. So you see that yeah. battle there, and it's, it really carries on while Saul chases David around. So yeah. David has 
the Holy Spirit, or the, and Saul is chasing after it, and he knows what he wants. It's not it, he still wants God, but God's because of his sin. There's a, a chasm there. That Massive chasm. Yeah. Can't get across. My commentary suggested it's like judgment, and so yeah. he has to deal with like living, basically living with himself. No. But if I wouldn't have done this, or if I would have done that. Yes. Here's where I would be instead of losing all this. And so it's like shame and guilt. And it, it, it is a shame and guilt that literally will drive him utterly insane. He'll lose his mind. That's interesting. Point that was made is if you guys listen to the podcast is is this God's way of allowing uh, His witness to go forth? That when you see Saul is utterly insane, that he's been disobedient, that that people now look at Saul and say, "I don't want to be that way. I don't want that to happen to me." I think it's an also another way that I, I had not thought of. You brought that point up. It's definitely going to let people see his leadership is in jeopardy. It's going to let people say, "E easy on the loyalty to this guy." Well, let's keep going. We'll wrap up. Uh, what I would say is that it's a complicated text. Uh, it's a complicated text. And, man, I would say I would encourage you to email Mark Christian for clarity. <laughs> so moving on. <laughs> love that. Mark, Mark's going to listen to that and go, you did what to me? Um, and, and I do love that. I love the Bible is not just so simple it's not mysterious at times. That's a mysterious, that's a mysterious text. And I, I love that about it. I love the fact that we can't just, oh, I got that figured out. I love the fact that I'm like, huh, I got good questions to ask when I get to heaven. God, what did this, explain me fully what that meant. All right, let's keep going on. Um, Let me get to this next section. Uh, There's something I was going to add to that and I forgot. All right, let's go on. Okay, Uh, a few other things we're going to catch up here that I think are important. Saul's attendant said to him, see an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Uh, Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. Uh, He'll play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you. Uh, and then you'll feel better. Now, you've got to keep in mind that they would consider any spirit being from God. They would, have, they would have looked at it that way. The word harp is so unfortunate. So unfortunate. Does anybody have a different word than harp in their text? Yes, yeah, such a better word. Somebody Google image. I've not done this. Somebody Google image a liar. Not like L-I-A-R. Uh, it's going to have a politician show up if you do that. Um, Google image a liar. What do you get? Anybody got that? I'm curious what it pulls up. Because I meant to do this earlier. What's it showing on liar? Anybody know? Because the actual word that you would have used is a little bit different. I'm going to describe a liar. Do you have one? Okay. Okay, it looks different than a harp, doesn't it? Very different. So a liar, you picture this. I'm going to describe it and you tell me in our language what we would call it. Because it's way better. Way better than harp. Strings stretched across a sounding board over a blank space attached to a crossbar you would then draw a large pick across the strings with one hand and deaden the strings with the other what do we call that a guitar yes please picture david playing guitar and not a harp please please picture him playing little james taylor whatever it is that makes you happy please can we stop picturing david Plucking a harp, it's something that looks like a glorified dress. Okay? This is a great looking guy playing guitar. Okay? Girls would have swooned over him at the beach, is what I'm saying. 
uh, please picture something different. Harp is just not, and especially when you go and you start picturing all the songs that he wrote, all the things that he did, you get 71, I think it's 71, 73 different psalms, songs are attributed to David. He is an outstanding musician. And so this is where every guy, David walks in the room, you're like, jerk. He's great looking, incredibly athletic, best looking guy anyone's ever laid eyes on, plays the guitar like nobody's business, and not only that, he doesn't just do karaoke, he writes great songs as well. You know, and hey, by the way, I killed a giant in my spare time. I'm like, get out of here. You know, he's just like, David, whatever. You know, but he's got dad issues, so at least, you know, we can pick on him for that. Anyway, I look at it going, I, I just love having a little more refreshing current view of David. A little better view of who he is. And, uh, and honestly, I, I pick on him a little bit. He had an amazing ability to rally other men to him. Uh, he wasn't just some soft guy. Uh, he's the one that other, even rough men, you'll find later on, rallied to David. People liked his leadership. Uh, people liked him. You know, he's just, he's, just he's, a, he's, a, he's a good man that people liked. Uh, and he's, he's very humble as well. Keep going on. It says, One of the servants of David, uh, servants answered, I've seen the son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the, the we're going to say guitar. He's a brave man and a warrior. I don't know where they're getting that. Uh, maybe it's because we know that his brothers go to war in the next chapter, and maybe the fact that, well, man, story's been told. Maybe they know the story already, because at this, by this point, he's already had to kill the lion and the bear. That, that's probably stories that are getting told. Like, dude, you know, one week he goes out, you know, kills a lion, and they're taking the pelt and hanging it up, and everybody's coming around to look at it. You, know, you think about it. If you killed a bear in this area, everybody want to see it. Man, I want to see the bear. Even more so, at this point in time, they know this guy's story like, oh, dude, that's David. You know, and I don't know if he's getting, like, booking contracts. Hey, David, you come play for the bar mitzvah, so-and-so. Come play guitar. I don't know. But word's out all over the area that this guy's a, got a phenomenal voice. He's got a great voice, great-looking guy, plays a guitar like nobody's business, enough that it's making it to the ears of the king. It says, uh, and it says, and he speaks well. I mean, just look at this guy. <laughs> Good night. He speaks well. Uh, and is a fine-looking man. I'm like, it's just like I'm getting tired of these little things in here. He says, and the Lord is with him. Wow, there's another one. Wow, there you go. I can just say I'm hoping my daughter meets a guy like David someday. Uh, well, no, let me let me retract that because Micah had a bad go with David. Yeah, well, I don't know what I want to say that. Yeah, and he cheats on his wife and kills her husband. No, never mind. I'm going to stop there. I want I want her to meet David at this point. We'll say that. Says, and then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Even though he's been anointed king, Jesse knows. Still sticking him out with the sheep. Still putting him out there. And I don't know, maybe he puts him out there because he's he's got other sons that are tough. They're going to war here in a little bit. He says, So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, and he sent him with the son David to Saul. That's what I'm saying. That would have talked about wealth. We're looking at going, if somebody sends a donkey and some bread, in our culture, that's no big deal. In this culture, it's signifying the guy's got some money. That's a big deal. And it says that the Lord is with him. Yeah. So they had to have heard that he was anointed, or how? I don't know. That's a great question. Maybe they just sense. I don't know. And, and I don't know. Maybe I've just now thought of this because you brought it up. Maybe it's after the anointing is when he kills the lion and the bear. Maybe that's when the Lord's with him. I've never, I've never considered that possibility until just now. Going, huh? Maybe it's after the anointing. 
is, is when that killing happens. Because there's a gap of time here between when he's anointed and when he goes to, to be with Saul. I don't know. Never thought about that before. Yeah. Mm, I don't know. The question is, could the Lord be with him who wasn't anointed? I mean, I think the Lord could be with... The Lord was with His people, so, he, so yeah. He must have been with him because he killed a lion. Killed a lion and a bear. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt about that. It says, uh, David came to Saul, entered his service. Saul liked him very much. And David became one of his armor bearers. Uh, armor bearer is a very important place. You've got to know how to handle weaponry. Uh, you got to take care of things. Uh, being the king's armor bearer is a big deal. It's a big, big deal. Uh, it doesn't mean that he's going into battle first. We do know that they accompany into battle. Uh, and, and that's, uh, you got to be able to trust your armor bearer. I mean, there's got to be immense trust as a king that when you go, this guy's not going to turn tail and run. And you got to have immense trust uh, that this guy's going to have what you need, when you need it, and he's going to be ready to go. Uh, and so, not only, I mean, I'm just looking at this guy going, he's courageous, he's trustworthy. So many things about David are pretty amazing. Um, and then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Keep that in mind. It's really important when we jump to chapter 17 next week. It says, Whenever the Spirit of God came upon Saul, David would take his guitar, I'm going to say that, and play. Then relief would come to Saul and he'd feel better. And the evil spirit would leave him. So many deep layers there about what worship does you know, we talk about guilty pleasure music. I also know that there are worship songs that for me can completely change me. And, and I know I've got guilty pleasure music, and, and sometimes that can add fuel to the fire. Uh, sometimes my guilty pleasure music can actually almost drive me away from God and take me even to a worse place because it feeds my anger that day or it feeds my frustration. Or, but I also know there are times for me when I turn on worship and, or I just turn my radio off and I just sing to the Lord. And I have watched. There are times where I feel like, an, man, enemy is after me today. You ever felt that way? Enemy is after me today. And there are moments where I can tell my attitude, my psychological frame of mind is already in a bad place. You ever felt that way? Like, man. And it's interesting the way music can transform. And I'm looking at it now. We know that this evil spirit affects Saul psychologically. No doubt, Scripture's really clear about that. It's interesting the role worship plays. And I would say, beyond just guilty pleasure music that we started with, when you get to that point where you're in a psychological funk, or you feel like evil is coming against you, we might be able to learn some things here from, David's li- from Saul's life in our own life. And go, you know what? I probably need to figure out what role worship and music can play it's interesting looking at it going it wasn't i'm not trying to degrade the power of prayer the power of preaching the power of counseling but there is something special about music that's more than just notes there's something deep about it uh i know there are times when when words don't do much for me but music can almost move me to tears at times you know what i mean what is it about it that manipulates our minds and our souls so much? It's a beautiful thing that God's given us. What a beautiful, amazing gift that we have in that. And I think I would look at it and say, I'm going to try that next time. When I find myself going to a dark place, uh, and I can't seem to talk my way out of it, pray my way out of it, think my way out of it, I'm going to encourage you this week or sometime go, I'm going to turn to worship. 
We're going to turn to worship. And, and maybe at some point, not even you being the one that's singing, but at this point, it's not Saul doing it. It's Saul just being an audience. Saul just receiving it. And man, whether you're, I'd encourage you to get you a good pair of headphones. And at some point where you need to, and you know you're in a dark place, and you don't like your frame of mind, uh, what Saul would do is say, I, I love the fact, this is one of the Spirit of God... Uh, Came, uh, came upon Saul, they would take his harp and play. Uh, there's one, where's it? I missed that spot. Where's one, I want to read something. I thought there was some place that was said they would send for him. Where's that at? Yeah, that's probably my own mind. Uh, said, uh, David would take his harp and play, and relief would come to Saul. He'd feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. And, and all of that, what I would say is, don't regulate your use of worship, your use of music, to just Sunday mornings. I think, you're, I think we're missing out when we do that. I think we're missing out. Uh, and there have been moments on Sunday mornings where, man, I've been moved to tears. And I've been, my heart's been broken. I guess I would wrap up with that and say, experiment that with that a bit this week. If you want to have a little bit of fun, your mood gets bad. And do you have those moments where you know you're being a pain in the butt, you just don't want to admit it? Or maybe you know it in your own head, like, I really don't like the way I sound right now, but I just can't stop. Anybody besides me ever do that with a spouse or with kids or... At work, you're like, good night, I do not like my attitude, but it just keeps coming out of my mouth right now. I keep thinking this way. It's like, somebody shut me up right now. Get me to stop doing this. You know, you know you're barking at your kids, or you know you're just got to, you're, you're on your way home, and you're like, I'm already in a foul mood, and I've not even walked in the door yet. Maybe the best thing for you is to text your spouse and say, going to be five minutes late. Uh, you know, got to run and do something real quick. And maybe you just pull in the parking lot, put the headphones on, turn the music on, and say, God, I need to consecrate my heart to you and, and just find out what emotionally happens to you in those five minutes. What happens? And I'd be curious to find out the way that worship and music can transform your heart. Because we see it down here for Saul, and I think it can still happen for us today. All right. Next week, one of my favorite, 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 favorite ones I promise to get incredibly wound up next week. Uh, I am not even denying it. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.